Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're picking up our discussion about drought in the western U.S., and our focus in this episode will be the Klamath Basin. Joining me for this episode is Amelia Raquel, Ducks Unlimited's regional biologist for the Intermountain West, and Chris Colson, Ducks Unlimited's regional biologist for the Northern Great Basin. Amelia, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And Chris, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, Amelia, I'm going to start with you. You joined us on an earlier episode, I guess it would have been maybe two years ago. Maybe it was the first season of the podcast, and we, in fact, talked with you at that time about the work that you do in the Klamath Basin, and the Klamath is receiving a lot of attention. I think we've had an episode about it pretty much every year, and it's because it's really important to waterfowl. It's really important to Ducks Unlimited, but then also this year, it is it, there are some well, it's, it's undergoing another year of extreme drought, and so we're, we're talking about it a, a fair bit. We had Jeff McCreary and, and Dr. Mark Petrie on an earlier episode where we discussed the drought in the western U.S. from a sort of big-picture perspective, and now we're going we're gonna to delve in in more detail here on the, on the Klamath Basin yet again. So uh, for those that maybe may have missed one of those earlier episodes with you, Amelia, give us a brief introduction to what you do for Ducks Unlimited. Sure. So I'm the regional biologist for the Intermountain West, which covers Klamath Basin into Southern Oregon, Northeastern California, and the entire state of Nevada. Um, So I work with an engineering counterpart and do on-the-ground habitat delivery projects across the region. Um, So a lot of grant writing, partner development, and then project delivery. And, And you've been with Ducks Unlimited for how many years now? Three. Three. All right. And Chris, you, uh, same to you, give us an introduction to you. And actually, I'll ask you for a bit more of your your background. Uh, Amelia gave us her background the first time that she was on. But for you, where'd you come from? And then in your position with Ducks Unlimited, what do you, what's the type of work that you do? Sure. Uh, I am based out of Boise, Idaho, but I, I hail from the Southeast. Uh, I did my graduate work in wetland biogeochemistry at Auburn University uh, before I came out West. Uh, you know, so I'm not the traditional waterfowl biologist uh, that, that we often see at Ducks Unlimited. I manage our conservation program, uh, our delivery in eastern Oregon and southern Idaho. But in the Klamath Basin, I, I sort of function as, let's say, our water diplomat, if you will, for lack of a better term. Well, I'm going to have to get you to tell me exactly what that is then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's challenging to define. Now, you know, we... Originally or initially, we were referring to it as, as water policy, but it's it's more than just, you know, advocating at a political stage. It's it's more about managing relationships and, uh, you know, representing Ducks Unlimited and on, on the face value of many meetings and collaboratives and initiatives that are that are always ongoing in the basin. Very good. I think we're going to get into that topic a little bit more when we talk about the you know, the complexities of water allocation and all of the different things that are coming together this year have been coming together for the past few years to affect uh, water availability and the lack of water, quite frankly, for a lot of the interest in that basin. So we'll hear more about that from you here in a few minutes. But for right now, let's go ahead and jump in. And Amelia, I'm going to direct this question to you. And as I said, we have, we've heard about the Klamath Basin a number of times on previous episodes. For the sake of introducing people in this episode, if this is the first time joining, 
morning. Tell us about that region, where it is, what are the primary habitats there, and what's its significance to waterfowl and Ducks Unlimited? Yeah, so the Klamath Basin straddles the southern Oregon and northeastern California border. Um, Critically important to Pacific flyaway waterfowl during both spring and fall migration. I think about 80% of the flyaway population passes through there, either, either during spring or fall. Um, also important breeding ground and molting area for local local birds. I think a couple of times I've asked you to review some documents or articles or maybe even previous uh, episodes of the podcast and asking for your insights and, you know, did we get everything correct? And I think in every, t- every case, you've had to correct me a little bit on my tendency, I think, to characterize the the Klamath Basin as being important for wintering waterfowl. And so you've you've always been very, very appropriate in reminding me that it's it's really a migration area. So that means I think that that it gets pretty cold there and everything freezes up. Most of the birds move out of there in winter. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It <laughs> uh, definitely freezes over midwinter. Okay. So about in a normal year, what time would the birds arrive in fall? And then what time would they have exited the, uh, the, the Klamath Basin to, to I guess, mostly the, they would be going to the Central Valley? What time does that happen? So birds have already started to arrive. So they'll probably start, you know, August, September. Uh, peak is probably mid-November-ish. And then it starts tailing, tailing off um, as it starts freezing up there. So probably December and early January, it's pretty minimal assuming that it stays frozen, but they've had some, you know, freeze thaws and birds will trade back and forth between the basin and the central valley and things like that. So, and then once spring rolls around, what time would you normally see the wetlands begin to thaw and birds return? Probably late February, March. I think peak migration is about mid-March. Let's talk a little about the wetlands of the Klamath region. And you can you can reference um, any prior episodes that we've done. I mean, we've, like I said, we've talked extensively about it, but highlight some of the most important habitat types or public areas or private ground within the Klamath Basin uh, that's important from a waterfowl standpoint. Yeah, so historically, the Klamath Basin... Um, were these large lakes. And so Upper Klamath Lake still remains and is managed by the Bureau of Reclamation. Um, but Lower Klamath Lake and Thule Lake uh, were drained um, for agriculture back in like the early 1900s. And so in the historic Lower Klamath Lake is the Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge. And then in the historic Thule Lake bed is the Thule Lake National Wildlife Refuge. And those are, um, well, Lower Klamath was the first waterfowl refuge in the country, and Tule Lake was not far behind that. If any of our listeners on this episode are first-time listeners, I strongly encourage you to go back to three episodes that we recorded actually last year with Dr. Mark Petrie and Dr. Dave Mauser. Uh, three episodes that cover the entire history of the Klamath Basin, how it was developed, its importance to waterfowl, and a lot of the complexities of the water allocation and water delivery that we'll touch on here in this episode. We re-aired those episodes right before season five, so they should be easy to find, but those give you a very detailed history of all of the things that, that Amelia, you, you just referenced there. So um, that's probably as detailed as we will get on this episode because we don't want to kind of replow old ground and for the sake of time, get into some new topics here. Uh, sort of doing the same thing with each of you that we did with Virginia here recently, where we spoke with her about some of the, uh, in a more focused Focused discussion about the effects of the western drought on waterfowl, 
habitats, wetlands, and, and winter flooded rice, as well as hunters in this central valley of California. And so this is a natural pairing to that episode. Uh, so from, from that perspective, Amelia, do we have any insight on the importance of, of the Klamath Basin to, let's say, to waterfowl hunters? Let's speak about it from that perspective. Do you have, can you describe its importance uh, in, in that regard? Yeah. So I think historically when, you know, the refuges were online, for lack of a better term, it was probably one of the premier waterfowling areas um, in the Pacific Flyway, maybe in the nation. Um, That drove a lot of the local economy. And that has since kind of fallen off with the refuges kind of being in the state that they're in. But, um, you know, if you look at the Harvest Survey, Klamath County, which is in Oregon, and Siskiyou County, which is in California, they both rank in the top 100 or so in the nation of counties for harvest. So pretty high harvest in the Klamath Basin overall still. From a, and that would be like during a a normal year or over a a series of normal years, right? Because we're dealing with extreme drought right now, and there's not likely to be nearly as much waterfowl harvest occurring this year, right? Yeah. So when we think about its importance for waterfowl, what are some of the most important species that are going to be coming through there? Just for, again, for people that may have missed previous episodes and sort of Cliff Notes, notes version, um, then let's think normal year. Um, what are the primary species that are going to be coming through there and will benefit from wetlands in the climate? Uh, Northern Pintail is a huge, um, huge species that comes through the basin in the greater Sonic, Southern Oregon, Northeastern California area. Um, there's a lot of Mallards, gadwalls, cinnamon teal, uh, white fronts come through there in large numbers, and white geese. That's what most people are after. So thank you for that, Amelia. I, I want to move on now and let's start talking about in, in a bit more detail some of the water complexities that I've referenced. And Chris, I'm going to go to you for this one here to begin with. Given your position as, what did you call it, the water diplomat? Is that what you said? Let's go with that, Mike. Yeah, okay. yeah. water <laughs> diplomat. Okay. Uh, give us give us the the abbreviated version of, of what people need to know about water complexities, water allocation in the Klamath Basin. Uh, you can you can go into as much detail as, as you want or as, as we think we need to here. But uh, yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. What makes the Klamath Basin unique and challenging? And then you can even speak about how some of that may have changed here in recent years. Sure. It's, it's sometimes best to refer to kind of a, a timeline of actions that occurred over the, maybe the past two decades that, that kind of led to the complexities that we see now. But it's important also to keep in mind that we are talking about an inner west basin, you know, where where we can have, you know, dramatic cycles of drought. And those cycles seem to be increasing both in intensity and frequency over the last few years. So, you know, you're taking a system that is already, uh, you know, inclined to go through dry cycles already. And then with some of these actions that have taken place, it, it, it really constricts the ability to, to be flexible and adapt in those situations. So starting in the late 80s and then through the late 90s, uh, three fish were labeled, uh, were listed, federally listed under the Endangered Species Act. Two suckers that occurred in the upper Klamath Lake were listed as endangered. And then later, about a decade later, uh, Soho or Coho salmon, excuse me, were listed as threatened in the river. And what that ended up doing was through the Endangered Species Act and the processes for maintaining populations and or recovering populations, a biological opinion was issued. And that biological opinion laid the framework for maintaining lake levels for the suckers and downstream flows for the salmon. 
And shortly after that was released, which you know basically provided this regulatory management framework for how the system was now going to be managed, uh, the basin had its first big drought cycle in 2001. Uh, under that regulatory framework, the project supply to the irrigators and the refuge was shut down. And that was our first big scare. Um, and what we've seen since then is new iterations of the biological opinion that are requiring greater flows downstream, maintaining that environmental water account is what they call the, the lake level that they need to maintain. And as cycles continue, cycles of drought continue, now the, the managers of water have less opportunity, less flexibility to get water to all those resource needs. And it's, it's hurting the fish too in some cases, particularly in this year where downstream flows have not been able to be maintained. And so correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but let's just say we had a normal year, an, a year of normal or even above normal, above average snowpack, which is one of the, which is the primary source of the irrigation water or the water that, that feeds the Klamath system. Um, even in a normal year or above average year, those decisions that you've talked about have made it where that the refuges are, are challenged to get the amount of water that they used to back in what, the 90s or even early, would it have been, I guess it would have been the 90s. Is that is that right where, I mean, it's, there's not enough water to go around anymore to get back to the the heydays of when those wetland conditions were, wetlands were being managed sort of in their prime. Is that right? That is right. The, um, you know, even under good circumstances, there is just not enough water to go around. And, you know, the brass tacks of it all is the refuge is at the bottom of the pecking order for those allocations. Uh, on top of that, as, as the surrounding irrigation districts and the project have had to work with their own reduced supplies, they've become more efficient. And so all water that gets to the refuges needs to flow through those irrigation districts. And so as they become more efficient in response to reduced water allocations, less water, tailwater is coming out of those districts and flowing onto the refuge. Confounded by that was a lot of the pumping infrastructure that made the water move around was operating under special contract rates, Pacificor. Those rates expired in 2016. So now it's very cost prohibitive for the districts, even when they have surplus water, to justify turning on the pumps to circulate the water around and distribute it onto the refuge. So there's lots of things working against the refuge right now uh, that's going to be challenging to overcome. So you mentioned irrigation district, which immediately leads to you know the, the recognition of that there are agricultural interests within the region that depend on that water as well. Municipalities also exist on uh, depend on water in the region, and so this is more than just a fish and duck thing, right? We have a number of basically every everything within the basin depends on water, requires water. Uh, what speak about the the agricultural interest and how they factor into this? And I guess also, uh, Chris, the perspective of how we now work more closely, have found the need to work more closely with those, with a diverse interest to, to uh, try to do a better job managing the water and figuring out viable solutions. Yeah, certainly we, we recognize that agricultural lands, you know, they play their part in providing resources for birds. Uh, in the Klamath Basin, well, let me back up, you know, any refuge system around the country is, is you know, its value is only enhanced by that of the surrounding ag lands. I think we can generally accept that. In the Klamath Basin, it's confounded perhaps even more in that they're, to a degree, co-managing water together. And so recognition of, of, of the ag lands and what they provide to birds, but also the role they play in conveying water to the refuges makes them an important partner. And, and, and our work with them, you know, is 
is transparent in that they know we're working for on on behalf of the refuge. We are advocates of the refuge, but we recognize that we can't we can't accomplish much without working with them and improving their their livelihood as well. Chris, I want to talk about the drought that we're in right now. That's going to be the focus of this conversation going forward. So frame this up for us from a historical context. How bad is it in the Klamath Basin? Uh, and uh, yeah, let's just start there. How bad is it and what are conditions like out there now? You know, I think the easiest comparison is to take it back to 2001. Uh, it's, it's very similar where we saw things were, you know, the projections for water, you know, based on snowpack, we saw they were low. We had lower, somewhat low years preceding this. And so a lot of these intermountain and Great Basin systems, if you have successive drought years, you, you lose the recharge. And so each successive year, makes that drought that much more impactful the following year. And so we're kind of in that kind of cycle right now. And I, I think, you know, for me, what really has highlighted, you know, the intensity of this drought is that as water became, so no project supply was provided to the irrigators. So no, the Bureau of Rec released no water to the irrigators, no water to the refuge. Uh, in response to that, many of the irrigators were forced to supplement any water they may have had with groundwater. And so as they started pumping and as they were not flood irrigating their fields, then the shallow groundwater started to drop. And so now we're seeing an actual impact to the municipal water users. Or Klamath Falls is entirely dependent on groundwater pumping uh, for their city water. It's, it's one of the few communities in the country that's wholly dependent on groundwater. And, you know, so now this drought was, was bad enough that, you know, we see our refuges being impacted. We see our downstream fisheries being impacted. We see our agricultural lands being impacted. And now we finally see the municipalities, the, you know, what people just commonly take for granted, you know, their, their water being impacted. City of Klamath Falls, you know, was it was able to get by without much, but it was the independent well users, the, the domestic well users that were impacted where water was being trucked in from from out of the area. Yeah, it gets real whenever it gets to that level. That is for sure. Speaking of Im, uh, impacts on agriculture, Virginia shared with us relative to the Central Valley that the, the drought and reduced availability of irrigation water this year resulted in a reduction in the amount of planted rice. And it's certainly going to amount to result in a reduction in the amount of winter flooded rice, but just the amount of rice planted this year in the Central Valley is down. Do you have a read on any effects like that in the Klamath Basin? Is there a certain amount of, of irrigated agriculture that was not planted this year, or did producers end up choosing alternative crops this year? It's it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, a little bit. Of, some folks, you know, went ahead and planted, thinking that they would get a better allocation, and then when that allocation didn't come through, you know, their their crops were left high and dry. Some folks, uh, I understood, you know, remain fallow through the spring and summer, hoping for fall water, and they're gonna they're gonna plant a fall crop. I wasn't real aware, uh, and maybe Amelia could provide some better insight and things she's heard, but I wasn't real aware of anyone using alternative crops, uh, you know, lower water demand crops to to get by this. It was, uh, you know, the the ground there, particularly those within the the irrigation project, the Klamath irrigation project. You know, a lot of the ground there is very productive wetlands and they, they, you know, take advantage of that ground to grow very niche product, organic products, huh, you know, things like that. And so it doesn't really, you know, the math doesn't make sense for them financially to go in an alternative direction in many cases. Yeah. I mean, there's some pretty specialized crops grown in the basin. So like mint um, leaves for tea oil and things like that, and horseradish and things that are pretty niche to that region. So 
you know, those farmers have invested a lot in those types of production. So going to something alternative is maybe not quite um, an option for them. And uh, there's also a lot of alfalfa in the region, which is a perennial crop. So ripping that out probably isn't really smart from an economic standpoint for a lot of them as well. But I think in talking to some of the farmers, um, I think there's definitely been a reduction in cereal grain production across the basin. And I think some farmers may have had to reduce their operation by 40% or so, which is pretty substantial. Yeah, it sure is. I want to follow up on that a little bit, Amelia. Um, so we have agricultural producers in the region, but, but we also have ranchers, right? How have they, how have they fared um, throughout the drought? How is it affecting them? Yeah, so I'd say most of the ranchers are in the upper Klamath Basin and then outside of the actual basin in the greater Sonic area. Um, But I would say they're definitely ever, all the ranchers I've talked to are hurting for feed this year. Um, A lot of them are going to have to probably buy more hay, especially to get their cows through this late summer period and into the winter. So, I mean, it's, they're definitely taking a hit. So thanks to you both for that description of sort of where we are with the drought, its historical context. Um, and and I guess, Amelia, I want to start talking about waterfowl a little bit. Obviously, we emphasized at the beginning the importance of the Klamath for, for waterfowl during fall and spring migration, but there are also waterfowl that breed in that region, right? And so how have they, I mean, this seems probably like a, a natural answer here, but what, what have we seen with regard to impacts of the drought on breeding waterfowl production in the region? Do we have a read on that? Yeah, I've spoken with um, the refuge managers just to get a sense of what they've been seeing. And this is primarily coming from the refuges. Um, and since Lower Klamath is dry, basically it's coming from Tule Lake. Um, so that's not to say that these birds haven't been using other water bodies in the basin. But basically, the typical production across the refuges is about 30 to 60,000 waterfowl. This year, they think it's about 10 to 20% of that. And that's coming from some of their banding drives um, and basically getting minimal hatchier birds in those banding drives. So it's pretty low production coming off the refuges. Amelia, I know there's, so, so the, the basin is important for breeding waterfowl. Low production this year was much reduced wetland base, as we heard from, from Dr. Mark Petrie. Uh, and then, of course, your, the numbers that you just reported there from the, the refuge staff. But the Klamath Basin and, and the refuges there are also really important as, as molting areas. And last year we spoke about a, a pretty substantial botulism outbreak that occurred. And I know that was one of the big concerns coming into this summer is that we might see another one of those. Kind of give us an update on that. Talk about the importance of, that, of the basin from a, uh, a, a molting standpoint. And then how did all of that unfold this year? Sure. So typically, um, the basin and the refuges are really important molting grounds for a lot of the Central Valley um, hen mallards and things like that. And so typically, there's about 200 to 3,000 molters on the refuges. And this year, they saw only about 30 to 50,000. So huge drop in molting birds using the refuges this year. So in terms of the botulism outbreak, because of the decrease in water supply, um, we worked with the local irrigation district and the refuge and the local farmers, and we actually drew down Sump 1A, which is a 9,000-acre unit on Tule Lake National Wildlife Refuge that has never gone dry in the past. Um, so that water, we moved into Sump 1B, which is about a 3,000-acre unit. Um, so to try and mitigate the impacts of botulism on that large 9,000-acre wetland with really shallow water and high temperatures. So move that water into 1B, um, dried up 1A, and then because 
there wasn't quite as much water in 1B as we thought there would be. Some of the local farmers actually pumped some of their groundwater into 1B. So they think because of that cooler water inflow, that actually kind of subsided the the, um, botulism outbreak. So they actually had very minimal botulism on the refuges, which is pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because I know a, a few months ago I heard about some of the planning that was underway for some of the, you know, for for, for hospitals, the duck hospital or, or whatever it was, it was called there, uh, preparing for a pretty massive botulism outbreak. And yeah, the, the it sounds like what you were trying to do is just not make... <laughs> not make habitat available for them in some respects, or at least uh, ensure that what wetlands were there were not of ideal condition for a botulism outbreak, right? So, um, well, that's good. I, I'm, you know, botulism is naturally occurring. It happens to some degree every year, but certainly we're glad that we avoided, uh, you know, any significant outbreak of that type this year. Um, so I want to now transition to migration, which is sort of the time of year which we're in right now. And we've kind of, we've gotten a report on this from Mark and, and Jeff already, but just for, for this episode as well, it's it's dry up there. We know that. There's, I've heard, I think Virginia described it as there's virtually no water in the climate. There's virtually no wetland habitat in, in the climate. And I don't know if that's, a, you know, that may be a slight exaggeration, but it's probably not by much. So what's your assessment of, of what the birds are going to find whenever they migrate into the climate this year? Yeah, I'd say the only wetland habitat available, at least on the refuges, is 1B currently, which is a 3,000-acre unit. Typically, there's about 40,000 acres between the two refuges. And then the other big body of water is the Upper Klamath Lake. But in terms of food resources in that lake, it's probably minimal or not great. So, yeah. Are there... Are there wetlands on private land uh, at this time of the year, or are there normally, and are there that you're aware of this year? Um, in the Klamath Basin, there's not a whole lot of wetlands on private ground, um, with the exception of one of the irrigation districts, which is just north of Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge. Um, they tend to have some fall-winter water rights, so they'll actually do some pre-irrigation and flood some of their fields. Um, and I think there is some of that happening that this year, so that's good news. And then there is a state wildlife area on the Oregon side, which tends to have pretty good water rights off the river, so they might have some decent wetland habitat. But I think overall, I mean, it's still going to be less than what is needed. And what is the what do we expect birds to do this year coming to the Klamath? Um, I think we've heard some some ideas from, from Virginia, Mark, and Jeff, but give you an opportunity to talk about this as well. What do we think these birds are going to do? Yeah, I mean, I think we expect them to just kind of blow through the basin and move to the Central Valley sooner, which we've already seen in previous years. Um, another thing is they might actually be forced to dry field feed because there's a lot of cereal grain crops in the basin. Um, and typically those birds are pretty keyed in on flooded grain, but if it's not flooded and they're looking for food, they might switch to dry field feeding. So there's a potential for that. So as we, we're going to come back to the hunter aspect of it here in a minute, because there's definitely going to, that's, it's going to be felt by hunters in the basin as well. But I want to jump forward a bit to next spring what what's the possibility for recovery of of wetlands between now and and spring and this this re- I don't I don't have a good read on this because my understanding of the hydrology of that region is a bit limited but is there a chance if we were to get 
um, if we if we were to get abundant snowpack this year or abundant snow in the region, I don't know if it snows a lot in the basin itself, but help us understand what are the prospects for recovery of wetlands or or water resources in time to benefit spring migrating waterfowl next year? Yeah, I mean, I think across across the system, we need a good wet winter to help, you know, all the wetland basins out. Um, and actually, so Klamath Basin and the refuges are primarily really important for fall migration. The joint venture, you know, basically accounted for all resources on those two refuges for fall migration. But for spring migration, it's actually on the surrounding private ranching land. Um, so that actually ties into some of Colson's area and the rest of Northeastern California. So if we do get, you know, some good snowpack and some good rain and um, some of those shallowly flooded ranch lands are flooded in the spring, then there should be good spring habitat. And then Chris, I don't know if you want to jump in on what you're seeing in Oregon, but yeah, I mean, generally that's what we, we see is is a good snowpack, regardless of the preceding year, will always translate to good spring migration habitat as the runoff comes down. And it's really, as Amelia suggested or pointed out, it, it's you know, that's the importance of these perennial habitats, which generally make up all of our public lands in the Intermountain West. You know, these are the lower areas that historically, when when water was more plentiful, they were the areas that were unable to be farmed. And so they were made these wildlife areas, they were made these, you know, these unusable grounds, right? And and so now what we see is in these drought years is, you know, good snowpack will always translate to good springs, but it may take successive years of good snowpack to recharge these these perennial perennial habitats that uh, are, are so important for fall migration. So it sounds like uh, it's not a very pretty picture as we enter fall uh, for, for waterfowl, but there is a chance that things could recover over winter and could produce some of those those habitats for, for spring mi- migrating waterfowl. So we'll hold out hope for that as a little bit of a reprieve between now and, and next year. And that certainly the birds are going to be able to, will we'll need all the help they can get because we've heard from Virginia about some of the challenging conditions that they're at least going to find initially whenever they migrate into the, the, the Central Valley. So definitely an interesting year for the birds. It's also going to be an interesting year for the hunters in the Klamath Basin. I, I have to like, so my conclusion here, Amelia, is that there's not going to be very much opportunity for hunting uh, in the basin as well. Is that fair? That's pretty fair. I mean, it's interesting because on, you know, the upper lake and some of the other areas in the upper basin, um, a lot of that is more geared towards guys with boats. And so that is kind of also limiting, you know, so if you don't have a boat, um, and you're looking to hunt public areas, you know, basically right now it's only going to be open to dry field hunting. And so, yeah, people are going to have definitely less opportunities than typically they would. What about any efforts by the the refuges or state wildlife management areas in the region? Are they having to take any measures? To, are they announcing to people reduced opportunities for hunting? What does that, what's that looking like this year? Yeah. So just this last week, the state put out kind of an update across their state of California. I mean, um, put out an update across their wildlife areas in the greater Northeastern California, just because conditions have been so dry. So Shasta Valley wildlife area is basically not opening to waterfowl hunting um, in any of their wetland units because they don't have enough water to flood anything beyond their refuge units. I know some of the other areas have, you know, reduced, reduced numbers. Some of the 
I know Modoc Refuge and others are, have canceled the youth hunt, which is typically before the start of the season up in Northeastern California. So there's definitely a lot uh, going on across the different areas. So I'd encourage people to check those out before you head up and try and hunt. As we transition to to close out here, there's one one additional thing we need to talk about, and that is from Ducks Unlimited's perspective, what we are doing and who we, who we are working with to try to deliver, to try to identify and deliver conservation solutions in the Klamath Basin. So uh, each of you are going are gonna to have something to, to provide here. And so, Amelia, I'll start with you. Just tell people about what Ducks Unlimited is doing on a normal year, sort of on an ongoing basis, but then are there any things new that we are doing in response to the drought, any type of sort of urgent reaction or new innovative uh, program that we're putting in place as a result of the extreme drought that we find ourselves in? Yeah, so typically our program just across, I think, both mine and Chris's um, region has to mostly do with water use efficiency just because we're in the arid west. Um, So we work on a lot of large infrastructure projects to um, improve water conveyance to these public lands and private lands. Um, and then, you know, try and look at solutions to reuse water. Um, so like recirculation pumps and things like that. So that's like a lot of what our work is doing. Um, and then providing different management flexibility to different units because both of these refuges, I'm talking about Lower Clamp and Thule were basically designed to take as much water as they could. They were basically the drainage system to all the upstream irrigation projects. And now that they're getting minimal water, try to look at, you know, how to use what they have or improve what they have infrastructure-wise to be able to take this little water they're getting and use it um, to the best benefit as we can. Chris, anything to add from your perspective, either relative to some of the policy work that you may do or diplomacy work that you may do or any of the other areas in which you work? Sure. I mean, you know, kind of as Amelia pointed out that, you know, in our part of the world, uh, drought is often followed by opportunity. And so, you know, there's there's lots of uh, federal and state appropriations for funding that, that we're looking to take advantage of. And, you know, you know, Amelia makes reference to, you know, these these water efficiency improvements. And those kind of those are kind of on our, our short term vision, if you will. But our long, longer term vision is working within broader groups and collaboratives in the base. And you, where we're going to try do our best to stay apolitical. And, and come up with complementary solutions to, to big problems. And, and we see wetland-based solutions as, as playing a, a pivotal role in, in solving a lot of, of the problems in the basin. So that's kind of where our long-term sites are, is, is, is taking this drought and, and using it to kind of corral people around common cause and, and move forward. And so I think the final question that I have for both of you sort of relates to something that Chris started to address there or spoke a little about, and that is sort of long-term, what do we? What allows us to stay optimistic and what allows us to stay optimistic when talking with our partners, with talk, when talking to our supporters? Uh, Amelia, this is the area where you work. This is the fact that we are in a, we're, we're talking about water limitations, the fact that we are talking about drought is not a surprise to you given given the climate of this region. It is arid or semi-arid. And so when you have these conversations, what's the optimistic message that you deliver to people? I think there's a lot of um, creative, multi-beneficial solutions, for lack of a better term, out there that a lot of people can get behind. And I think that gives us and those folks hope for the future, given, you know, what they've gone through and 
know, the lack of water and how they've endured through, you know, those circumstances. I think there are some bright lights at the end of the tunnel that people can really get behind, you know, that benefit a lot of the different stakeholders in the, in the region. I, I guess before I go to Chris, I want to give you a chance, Amelia, to talk about any particular noteworthy project. You know, whenever we think about optimism and we want to pr- point out some of the work that we're doing and talk about how it's it's part of a of an overall long-term solution are there any projects within the Klamath Basin that that, that you're uh, that are particularly noteworthy right now that uh, that we want to highlight here before we before we leave yeah there's three pretty major ones each on um, the different refuges so on lower Klamath we're looking at an alternative conveyance system to water um, basically water enters through one point on the refuge and has to go through two massive wetland units before it can be used anywhere else. And that's obviously a problem now with the lack of water. So looking at a canal or some sort of conveyance system to be able to move that water around more efficiently. Um, On Upper Klamath National Wildlife Refuge, we have a multi-beneficial project where we're looking at improving the endangered sucker habitat and improving waterfall habitat and water storage and water quality. So lots of benefits coming out of that project. And then on Thule National Wildlife, Thule Lake National Wildlife Refuge, um, we're looking at what we call sump rotation, which is basically trying to move that water around and um, look at the infrastructure needed to be able to draw down some of those wetland units and then transition to farming and rotate that around to um, benefit everyone really and really reset those wetland units for um, waterfowl and other water birds. And that relates to something that I think I heard Dr. Mark Petrie say here recently is that there is a silver lining to this. And you may have even referenced this earlier is although we talk about how sump 1A, it's dry for the, I think it's sump 1A that's dry for the first time ever. That's actually not necessarily, uh, not necessarily an all bad thing because it does expose those wetland soils, those heavily organic wetland soils to air and leads to the, uh, the rejuvenation of those wetlands, recycling of nutrients. And so I know I've seen some pictures from you that are already showing the vegetation response to that drying. So when water returns when, and when all of these projects do deliver on their benefits of greater efficiency and of, of water use and water rotation, this is we're going to see the benefits of, of that wetland drying out this year, recycling nutrients and enhancing the productivity. And that's kind of what you're talking about as an ongoing thing, giving the refuge a better opportunity and better capability to do that on a more regular basis, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing that 1A from, you know, everyone's knowledge has never been dry before. And it's basically a dead marsh from the standpoint of, um, you know, quality of habitat for waterfowl and other water birds. And then, you know, just within a few months of it drying, we can see the massive response in germination of those plant species. So it's pretty neat. And, you know, how fast you see the benefits is pretty amazing. And then, you know, if we can get the water out there either this fall, winter or by spring, you know, we can really see the birds come and use it. So, so Chris, I will come back to you now and give you the opportunity to talk about the message of optimism, solutions, anything noteworthy that you're, that you're involved in, but uh, that, that you share or would want to share with our supporters, members, and anyone that's listening to this. Sure. Uh, you know, kind of building on, on Amelia's response, you know, we're talking about a very managed basin that perhaps operated on luxuriant water use, you know, in the preceding decades. And, you know, we we know what the birds need and we know what it takes. Uh, and, you know, managing water, you know, designing infrastructure to to get the last drop to where we need it to go is, is our wheelhouse. That's what we do. 
And so I'm confident from that perspective, you know, we'll get those near-term gains that'll, that'll keep the flyway alive, uh, at least as it relates to the clam face. And, um, you know, from, from a collaborative standpoint, we were successful in securing, in coordination with the Intermountain West Joint Venture, we secured a, a $5 million farm bill grant uh, over the past year that's going to provide some options for growers to, you know, manage, manage their production in a more wetland-based or bird-friendly manner. Um, and that's good for us and, and good for what we're seeking, but it also just provides them different options, different alternatives, uh, particularly in, in these drought years where, you know, they they don't just go fallow. They have another another thing they can try and go and, and still offset uh, their expenses and, and, and get some revenue in the door. Um, and finally, you know, this is maybe a personal observation, but, you know, a lot of the big ideas in the Klamath Basin always stop short because nobody's willing to commit 10 years of, of stable investment to to see them through and i you know that's the commitment ducks unlimited is willing to make here is, is we we have long-term visions we're articulating and refining them right now and we're not going to put them out there without making the commitment to to stand by and drive them through well amelia and chris i really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today and, and filling us in on some of the latest developments there in the klamath basin and giving giving us a bit more detail on how things are shaping up but more importantly some of the important work that we closed out here with and and the optimistic tone that we can leave this conversation with we definitely need it um this year and in a lot of places so thanks to both of you uh, for you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Amelia Raquel and Chris Colson. We appreciate their time and, and sharing their expertise with us. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does on these episodes and then getting them out to you. To you, the listener, we thank you for your time uh, spending it with us, and we thank you for your support for wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.